0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer and today I'm speaking with Anne Medai, author of The Librarian's Guide to Learning Theory, published by ALA Editions in 2023. From makerspaces to book clubs, from media facilities to group study spaces, from special events to book displays, libraries support learning in numerous ways. In the Librarian's Guide to Learning Theory, Anne Medai unchains the field of learning theory from its verbose and dense underpinnings to show how libraries can use its concepts and principles to better serve the needs of their users. Anne Mayday is the Director of Research and Instructional Services at the University of Nevada, Reno Libraries, and serves as uh, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal Evidence-Based Library and Information Practice. And welcome to New Books Network.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, before we start talking about your book, I would love if you could introduce yourself to listeners. Maybe you could share a little bit about where you grew up, what kind of path your education took, and what brought you to the work you're doing now.
1: Yeah, um, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. And um, I came to libraries, this was actually my third career, so um, I was first a middle school and high school teacher and then for a while I was an editor I worked at an education lab and then I worked at Elsevier actually for a few years as an editor and so uh, librarianship was my my third career but I started off I got um uh my bachelor's degree in English and theater my master's degree in theater and I started off as an English and theater teacher um and, and then later, I ended up getting my library science degree and then a PhD in education. Um, and um, I really went into libraries because, um, well, I found it kind of combined my interest. I loved education, and I loved editing and research, and I found that that was a good, it really kind of combined all of those things, at least a career in academic librarianship did. And, and um, my husband just said to me one day, you know, you... <laughs> You spend so much time going to libraries. Why don't you try to get a job in one? And so, so I did. I was like, yeah, I guess I should maybe get a library science degree. And so that's kind of how I found my way to um, to libraries, and I've been working in libraries for sixteen years. And um, and while I was doing that, I I just loved being in an education setting, and it was such I felt so lucky, and I just wanted to learn more about education. So that's why I got my my PhD. Um, um and that was um that was a kind of a, a joyful path as well for the most part.
0: <laughs> that's really great to hear. Um, and I guess that connects with with this book in a way that um right. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So turning to this book, The Librarian's Guide to Learning Theory, I'm really interested in what compelled you to write this book and uh, how the project originated and really what your goals were for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember as an undergrad when I had to, um, when I was, you know, was exposed to theory, I just didn't understand it. I, I, I was baffled by what theory meant, what it was. I remember as a a theater undergraduate major, I had to direct a scene from Hamlet using a certain theoretical context. And I was like, I don't even understand what a theory is. Like, how am I going to direct Hamlet from a certain theoretical point of view? But as I um, got older and, you know, ex. Uh, had went further along in my education i appreciated it a lot more and as i was doing you know research for my own job here and then also for my phd um i found i just kind of grad gravitated to um um, studies that involve certain kinds of educational theories so i i um some of my research um in librarianship, connected to self-efficacy, I did a couple papers on that, or collaborative learning, um, uh, motivation, and help-seeking inquiry. I was just, and I was really interested. I would pick up one and, and explore it, and then I found myself gravitating toward another and really wanting to explore that. And I did my um, my PhD dissertation in the area of collaborative learning. So I I really found it exciting because a theory can really help you um, understand a phenomenon a bit better. Um, and we as librarians are just in, in the middle of learning. We are at the center of learning, whatever kind of library we work at, we are at the core of it. And I thought that, I thought that a book on learning theory would help librarians just kind of understand their role a bit more. Um, because we're doing a lot of it already, and some of it we've heard things about but we don't really have time to take a whole class in it or, you know, just read theory after theory books. And a lot of these, a lot of learning theory is really dense. It's dense reading. It's often difficult reading. Um, It's sometimes it's older works or works in translation. It takes a lot of time to kind of wade through. And there are a lot of them too. There are a lot of different kinds of educational theories. So I wanted to make theory more accessible, and and show how it was relevant and could be practically applied to your work. And the other thing that I really wanted to do that I saw, um, just in my um, own practice as a librarian, because I'm a I'm on the public facing side of things, so I'm involved in research and instructional services um, to our campus. Um, but I saw a lot there's a lot written about information literacy. And I think most of the work related to educational theory relates it to information literacy. And that's that's good. And it's really important that as librarians, we do a lot more than just information literacy. We do a lot more. Um, and it's not just what we do when we visit a classroom and give You know, maybe give some instruction about information literacy. It's a much more we're We're involved in spaces and services and putting on events and, you know, putting on exhibits and displays and I'm selecting materials, all kinds of things, um, selecting technologies that relate to learning theory. Um, And that if we just understand learning theory a little bit better, it can even help us make better choices about, oh, well, how would we design a space or hmm. How does this exhibit help people learn? Because that's that's really the goal of um, of everything we do. So I wanted it to be um, accessible, um, practical, um, and then I wanted it to be um, not something you know, there's something you could pick up and read a chapter about if you needed to learn more about X. Let's say motivation you wanted to learn more about motivation. So you could just read that chapter. and You didn't have to read the whole book because you didn't need it all at that moment. But right now you, you needed the motivation stuff. Um, so I wanted it to be something that you didn't have to read you know, linearly, um, that you could kind of pick and choose depending on what your needs were. And I guess one more thing I would say, um, I wanted it to also be something that was um, practical for a lot of different people. So no matter what position you were in or what kind of library you worked at. So if you're a school librarian, if you're a public librarian, if you're an academic librarian, special, you worked in special libraries, um, that you can see the relevance for your work because um, learning theory is relevant for all of our work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's making me think maybe about why I really like connected with reading this book because my background is more in research instruction uh, but I currently work in technical services and electronic resources, right. um, which I do believe connects with like my instruction background and, and interests, Absolutely. but it's sometimes hard to articulate that. Yes. And I felt in reading this book, like I could clearly see and explain the ways that my work relates to learning in a yeah. way that I haven't necessarily had the words for.
1: Oh, good. And I've, I've, I'm hoping that people will will see those connections a bit better. Um, that is yes, not something yeah. that doesn't have to do with us. It really, uh, you know, all of the choices we make are influenced um, by these theories. And I, I, I guess I should say, too, that um, sometimes, you know, we've heard about some of these theories and they influence our work, but maybe we don't know enough to apply them as well as we could. For example, I think... Um, we've all heard probably repeatedly that we should be um, promoting active learning, that things need to be active in the classroom and active learning is the most important thing. And it really is very important. Um, But sometimes we think um, everything should be active learning all the time. Well, there are some times when you need to explain something to somebody. Um, there are other times when it's better for them to kind of discover it themselves in a more open, active kind of situation. Um, sometimes people think that all active learning is inherently collaborative. So whenever they think I've got to do something active, it's it's always like, okay, everybody get into groups. <laughs> and uh, and this doesn't just happen in libraries, it happens over all over education really. We all get into groups. It's another group project. And then it kind of creates um it creates a kind of group fatigue. Um that students like, oh, here we go again. It's another group project. Um it's another group scenario. It's another group discussion. And it's like, well, no. Um collaborative learning is just one way that you can achieve an active learning goal. But there are a whole lot of other ways to do it too and and then there are kind of misconceptions about active learning for example, people think that active learning means that le- like you're active like you're moving around and 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 yes it can be but the active part is actually in the brain. Um, something has to be going on in the brain actively and you can be very active you know in your head <laughs> and not moving. Um, at all. <laughs> and so if you understand it better, I think um, if you understand the theory better, then you can kind of make better choices. Another maybe quick example I would say is um, uh, modeling, for example. As librarians, we model skills a lot, which is to say we demonstrate um, skills Like we enact them and allow students to watch us doing it, observe us doing it, so then they can repeat it. And that's actually a really good strategy for helping people learn. But there's a lot of like intricacies or nuances about modeling that we might wanna think about when we make choices about it. For example, do we want to model perfect behavior or let's say perfect searches or do we want to model failure sometimes? Do we want to show a failed search? Because then a student can see us work through a failure and what that looks like, That's a really important lesson. Do you know part of modeling, successful modeling can involve thinking aloud so that students can see and hear our own cognitive processes. And think about how they can repeat them internally. So just like understanding modeling a little bit better can then help you go, oh, right. The next time I model, I'm going to think aloud a little bit more so that um, so that students can understand the process a little bit more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's like, I mean, just looking at the table of contents from this book, it's like there's a menu of like these different uh, uh learning theories, these different approaches, Um, there's 14 chapters overall, each uh, presenting a topic relevant to librarians and explaining relevant theory. I was so absorbed in every chapter. And I was curious how you identified the topics to focus on. Um, Maybe you want to share what some of those topics are, we've already talked about a few of them. And how does this approach The way you organized it, how do you hope it makes it especially useful for librarians?
1: Right, right, right. So, yeah, like you said, there are 14 topics, and um, um, I'll read them off here. They're constructing knowledge, and then we go into collaboration, attention, multimedia, observation, self-regulation, motivation, affect, context, dialogue, inquiry, imagination, Guidance. And then the last one is on individual differences, individual differences in learning. And I organized um, the book by topic rather than by the name of a theory. So, um, and that's often how learning theory books. And learning theory books tend to be written for education students. And they're often really dense, (laughs) Um, which I I studied um, some learning theory when I was doing my own PhD. Um, They're often dense and they're usually organized by theory. So it might be, here's here's information processing theory. And here's social cognitive theory. And here's sociocultural theory. Um, So they're organized by the theory or by the theorist, um, generally speaking. I wanted to... I'm, I do address the theories um, explicitly in the book, but I didn't want to organize it that way. I wanted to think about um, that because really, who cares what they're called, what what the important thing is like what they tell us about an idea like motivation. Um, there are a lot of different theories of motivation, but what does it tell us about why people make a commitment to learn something or not? So I wanted to focus on the topic, and I wanted to pick the topics that I thought were most relevant for the work of librarians because there are a lot. I mean, there are hundreds of topics um, to choose from. Um, so, for example, um, I didn't write a chapter on memory. Um, that's an important topic in learning, like how do we remember things. Um, but I just, I just felt that it wasn't as important for the work of librarians as some other topics, um, like, um, collaboration or self-regulation or things like that. So I, so I picked topics that I thought were most relevant to the work of librarians. I picked some topics, um, some topics you have to address, um, in a learning theory book, because they're just really important. You, You like, you can't not address the idea of Constructivism or constructing knowledge because it actually is a foundation for a lot of other things, or motivation or self regulation. Um, Those are some big things, but some other things um, I picked because I knew that they were more important, particularly to the work of libraries, like frankly, like imagination. Um, That's something that we think is really important fostering imagination in our learners, and maybe. Gets more or less play in different kinds of educational contexts inquiry. We do a lot with fostering inquiry, Um, and um, that might be something that education students don't talk about quite as much as we do as the inquiry process. And then things like um, one of the chapters I knew I wanted to write about was attention. um, and I guess I could say multimedia too. Multimedia is really important for our, our work because everything we do and somehow involves multimedia. Um, but attention, for example, um, is fundamental to learning. We often kind of take it for granted, um, but it can really make or break a learning situation. And it's fundamental to the reason that people come to libraries. Um, even if they never interact with a librarian. Our libraries are filled, whatever kind of library you have, they're filled with people who come to the library because they want to learn and they want to control their attention in a space that allows them to do that. Um, They know they can't learn at home because of their pets and their kids and whatever else because of the distractions. And learning can't happen without some kind of focus. So even the fact that we have libraries is, um, is intricately bound up with this idea of attention and learning, um, that people recognize the need to have a place that helps with that. So I knew, um, that that is a, um, a topic that needed its own chapter. Um, so in other words, I really picked those topics, um, that were really important, but also really closely connected to our work.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I think we can see with those examples how um, how they impact every area of our work. Um, and so, as you mentioned, you start the book with a chapter on construction, constructivism, right. constructing knowledge, and, right. um, and you talk about constructivist behavior theory. And I would love if you could speak a little bit about constructivist behavior theory for listeners who aren't familiar with it, and then uh, maybe share a little bit about what constructivism suggests... For librarians and how we see this concept pop up in other topics in this book.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, I think uh, you know constructivism is probably the most influential theory, um, of our time of the last, I guess, last century. Um, but, um, to understand it, I think you can really um, best understand what it's not, and and that is the idea that learning occurs through kind of a passive reception, that you just kind of open up someone's brain and you pour in the learning. And if they're just watching you or listening or reading or whatever it is, um, they'll absorb the learning and then the learning is done. And that we know that, that that's not how learning works now. Um, that it can't be a passive just ingestion that something active has to be going on within the brain so with constructivism we're really thinking about um the fact that it's an individual process in which each person mentally constructs um, knowledge and skills and what that kind of means is that um, each person has their existing information um and that they ingest new information, and that new information comes in conflict with that old information. And it's in in this process of new and old coming together is where this mental construction occurs. And because each person is different, and each person has a different set of information or knowledge or skills or what have you, that learning is always somewhat individualized, That, that even a whole, let's say, a class full of students presented with the same very same lesson, very same information, they're all going to learn different th- differently because they're all different and they all have kind of a, a different existing knowledge base. Um, and then when people organize this information through kind of their own organizational patterns in the brain called schemas, um, but this is what allows us to make sense of information um, and um, the way that way that learning occurs is when well it's through a process called cognitive conflict so i i have my existing understandings my existing organizational patterns for how i i understand the world and then i ingest new information from my environment from stimuli what have you and if it comes into contact uh, conflict i should say with my existing information there's some i have to like make sense of it i have to grapple with it um i have to think about it reject it incorporate some of it reject other people like i have to and then in the then in my head i'm reorganizing things like i'm i might change my organizational schemas i might create new ones but that's that's where the learning occurs and that's what we mean by constructivism, uh, or that this, this idea of kind of construction, and social interaction can play a big role in that too, because um, very often social interaction is how that occurs. So, um, you know, that cognitive conflict often occurs through, let's say, a dialogue with somebody, or even if it's not a, um like a, a dialogue with a, another Physical person who's in front of us, you know, we can experience that kind of conflict when we're reading a book or a textbook or something, and we find something interesting or different or unexpected or hmm, something we have to hmm, hmm, hmm I don't know, think about, grapple with. Um, then we experience that and we have to make sense of it, and that's that's kind of how um that's kind of how the learning um occurs. And so um so so constructivism also has um also relates to so many other topics in, in, in learning. It kind of sometimes sits in the background of a whole lot of, um, areas. For example, at least in this book, like I have, um, I talk about the role of dialogue. Well, dialogue, um, when we think about dialogue, we're really thinking about, you know, conversation with another person that with the intent of, kind of an open-minded approach to learning and growing, right? That um, I'm conversing with you because I want to hear something and potentially something different and that we can kind of grow from the exchange. Well, what's happening in my brain is that idea of constructing knowledge or the inquiry process, which is the process of asking questions and then seeking those answers. Well, what's going on in my brain as I'm asking these questions. I'm getting in new information. I'm making sense of it. Maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe you have to ask more questions. And again, um, I'm, you know, that's, what's going on, um, in terms of, um, constructing knowledge or, you know, imagination and creativity. Like, um, we think of creative creativity as, um, the creation of, of new ideas and often often we we come up with novelty when we um juxtapose different things or different areas into something new and again in our brains we're kind of making sense of that 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 novelty um when we kind of um bring our new and old together so yeah so constructivism it's really important it, it ties into so many other things in learning and certainly a lot of things that we do in libraries. And there are just a whole lot of ways that we can think about um, constructivism across everything we do so we can think of that about it in terms of spaces. So, for example, if we know that we know that cognitive conflict is really important for learning. okay. so what does that mean for spaces? Well, we want to have spaces where at least some of our spaces that allow people to come together to have conversations um, so that this cognitive conflict can occur. Maybe we put on events that, that promote that kind of conflict, maybe, uh, you know, healthy conflict, I should say, Um, you know, where we invite speakers who post challenging ideas that we provide forums that allow for, you know question and answer for those kinds of things to occur um often in um constructivism because it's so different for each individual um that of, often means that we encourage learners to uh, think about um, areas of interest to them like areas of passion to them um that they can pursue and often in pursue um uh with their own well in 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 different ways so that they can create different learning kinds of products that allow them to explore and follow these these connections that they're making in different ways so maybe in the libraries we provide a place for learners to share the results of their learning um their own unique learning share different products whether it's you know, art that they create, or stories that they write, or whatever it is, or maybe we we think of um, how we cr- you know provide materials and books that promote constructivism. Maybe that means we make sure that we provide primary source materials, um, and then and then also provide some instruction in how to use them because primary sources or even things like archival sources are really great for. Um, uh, helping learners to interact with them in ways that will, con- that will support this kind of active learning that's going on inside their heads. You know, they have, they come to a new object, a new, let's say historical document or something like that. And they have to learn to ask questions and, you know, read critically and read deeply. All of those processes will help, um, in 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 their own construction of knowledge.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of exciting to think about, like, how all of these aspects of our work are really, really deeply tied to learning. Um, and I know that we, we cannot talk about every single topic that you write about as much as I'd love to. But I was thinking I I was really drawn to chapter eight. Um, and I was thinking it would be neat to um, have you share a little bit more about that chapter? It, it's an emotional process. And I feel like I don't get to have a lot of conversations where we recognize that learning is an emotional process. Uh, right. but I saw this pop up actually in a couple, a couple chapters, this idea of emotion in learning. Right. Um, and so how does what does affect look like broadly within learning and how do affect and emotion impact our learning and, and what is the implications of that for libraries and librarians?
1: Right. Right. Um, So um, when we think about affect, I, you know, we can think about emotions, moods, um, basically those things that are subjective responses to stimuli of could be internal, but mostly external stimuli, um, and it's a really kind of both a mind and a body response. Like, you know, when we feel emotion or we feel moods, it's in our head, but it's in our body. Um, it's a whole, it's a whole kind of body response and it, it really does influence so much about learning. Um, I, I feel like ever since I, I mean, I've been in libraries, I do feel like librarians have been well aware of the role of Um, That emotions play a role, a significant role in learning because I, I mean, I think one of the first, the very first ideas I learned about even in library school was, was the idea of library anxiety that, you know, and this has been around for decades that, um, that students, when they come to a library, they get anxious they don't know how to do things that it makes them um you know, makes them uncomfortable and then it might make them not inclined to want to use a library and even though the original research um Constance Mellon's uh, Constance Mellon's research um was done decades ago in a very kind of different you know setting where you know libraries were physical more than anything and were still physical but so much has now moved online there's still um, there's this it's still a very real concept it's just kind of changed um and how it it exhibits exhibits itself so we've always known that um emotion was really important um emotion emotion is important because it ties into the idea of motivation it's an important component of motivation and motivation is just the willingness the willingness to do something the willingness to engage in some kind of goal-directed activity and no matter what kind of What you do to help a student learn, if they're not willing, they won't do it. The learning will not happen. And so we definitely recognize that a lot more in modern times, that we have to engage students. We have to motivate them to learn. And that part of that process um, ties into uh, kind of an emotional response. Um, The problem is that emotions are really complicated. So you have learning that's really complicated and then you have emotions that are really complicated and then you're bringing the two together. Um, So for example, um, we know that we have positive emotions and we have negative emotions. Um, So it would almost seem obvious, right? That if you feel positive emotions, that will help learning. And if you have negative emotions, that won't help learning. Um, And In a lot of cases, that's very true, but there are times when it's not. For example, um, a little bit of anxiety can sometimes be helpful for learning because it can sometimes be like, oh, I I don't feel totally comfortable with this. I I'd better I'd better study. (laughs) I better do something about it, whereas a lot of anxiety can be debilitating like I said before, like library anxiety. I, I mean, I will admit like when I was a fresh, when I was a first year student in college, I had library anxiety and I, the, I went to a, a big university, initially, a big university and the, the library was huge. And I heard that there were no, I heard that the books were not on the shelves that you had to go ask for them. And I was so embarrassed to go and ask for a book because it wasn't like my little public library um I didn't go into the library at all I was I was like I can't handle that um so too much anxiety is um it is debilitating a little anxiety might be motivating same with um and we know this very well too with librarians confidence um too much confidence um can be demotivating because you're like, a student might be like, oh yeah, I know all this. I know how to search. I know how to find things. I know how to have a, and then we're like, great, show us. And they don't know at all, or they're doing everything we, in a way we would kind of be horrified by, or we realize they really have a lot to learn, but they're overconfident. Um. So, I mean, usually you think of confidence as being a really good thing, but maybe in that case, too much of it can be a kind of hindrance to learning. So, so it's it's a really complicated, um, maybe another example is the way our kind of moods may affect, um, what we learn. So for example, um, if I'm in a really good mood, I'm really attuned to, let's say the positive aspects of what I'm. Learning. Whereas if I'm in a really bad mood, I see more of the negative. Um, and and we know, I think too, as librarians, we see this a lot. That we see the emotional attachment that sometimes clouds judgment in um, in spaces like online. Um, when people uh, are learning through kind of online sources. And we know that sometimes their emotions influence their willingness to be open to ideas, right? That you kind of stay in an information bubble. And sometimes that bubble is very um, colored by your emotions. And so you're, you're, you know, maybe you you're more willing, let's say, to believe false information, <laughs> or you're not open to different kinds of information because you are, you know, you're emotional, emotionally attached, too emotionally attached, perhaps to certain ideas. So emotions um, play into into all kinds of um, uh, situations and learning, and and an important component of it is, I guess, helping. Um, helping learners um, recognize how some strategies for how they can kind of regulate their emotions in positive ways. So for example, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like learners often know that if they go to the library, it will help them control their attention, um, which is important for learning. Um, Same way, they might, you know, that might be a way of kind of turning off emotional distractions or turning off your phone for a while. So you're not kind of subjected to this device. That's like a emotion button pusher for you, really, that if you can kind of put it away, then you can actually study and learn. Um, You know, another situation might be. um, uh, That's certainly, you know, we can help with in classroom situations or when we're consulting with students is thinking about like how we, um, how we kind of help students engage their emotions in a positive way. Like I always like to, I always think it's really important to listen to learners when they're talking about the things that are passionate and motivating to them, because it's really helping to engage their emotions in a way that they can channel into their learning. And then when we hear that they're experiencing kind of negative emotion, which they do a lot. I mean, for example, writing a research paper for most students, at least initially, is, a, is an anxiety inducing process. You know, they don't feel confident about it. They're worried about failure, um, but we can kind of help them reframe, kind of cognitively reframe it as an opportunity to learn about something they're passionate about, an opportunity to challenge themselves. We can teach them strategies for kind of monitoring their emotion that maybe you know they'll they'll divide a task into smaller like a research paper into smaller subtasks and they'll just focus on one task at a time. That is something that they can kind of conquer and that kind of hopefully feed into um, the perpetuation of more positive emotion that they can build on. Oh yes, I can do this. That gives them confidence for the next thing and the next. So I guess if we if we understand those kind of emotional situations that our learners encounter, we can just kind of think about, think about ways, um, ways that we can, we can help. Um, And I think too, I've I see a lot more too, that we do a lot more now. um, Thinking about the idea of belonging, you know, on, on, let's say on campuses and things like that, that, you know, when students feel like they belong, they're also experiencing a lot of, positive emotion a positive reinforcement and then then they can kind of funnel that into healthy ways of learning you know they're not distracted by all the by negativity or or fear or whatever it is um that they can they can can feel like they're in a, a space where they can focus on their learning. So there's a lot we can do. Even, I mean, just in the our one-on-one one on one-on-one on one interactions with, let's say, students, but even in the libraries, libraries as a whole, to kind of create these places that um, that support, you know, positive, mostly positive emotion, um, but at least emotion that can um,
0: support learning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And in thinking about how, I mean, you've you've looked at emotion as a topic, but it really does run as a thread through a lot of areas in this book, Uh, one thing actually that I did after reading the book. I spent a bunch of time looking at the index because i was really curious how the index might show me other kinds of threads that were um running through the book um index terms that had like a lot of page numbers beside them and i was like oh yeah i didn't really think about i think one of them was dialogue and i was like yeah that did really run through the book in ways that i hadn't been thinking about um so i guess thinking about like unifying threads that maybe you discovered while working on this, that run through multiple chapters like constructivism and like emotion. What overarching themes do you see for libraries and librarians to consider more seriously when we think about creating really intentional learning environments?
1: Right. Um, well, yeah, I wrote, um, I, I, I thought about this and in my first draft of the book, um, when I turned it in, my editor said, this is great, but I think you're missing something. You need like a conclusion that answers that question. And I was like, oh, right. So I need to go and think about that for a while. Like, what are the big kind of themes that ran through it? And so um, so I did address those in a, a conclusion. Um, but the first one is the idea of engagement, I think. Um, and that, like you said, ties into emotion for sure. But that students or learners, um uh, they have to be engaged in the process. They have to be committed. They have to be willing. Um, their emotions have to be in the right place for learning to occur. Um, and in some in some cases, like we can think of engagement even as like um even in terms of like self regulation. So, for example, you know they have to be willing to to try different different things when they run into difficulty learning because learning is often hard. So they have to use strategies to help them learn. Maybe they slow down. Maybe they reread. For us, I know in my department, in our library, we really want students to get help. (laughs) Um, We want them to be engaged in their own learning and that to be cognizant and self-aware enough to be like, well, I'm challenged right now beyond my ability. I need help. Um, and that I'm engaged in the idea of getting help. Um, that's important too. So, so learners have to be engaged. So engagement, I think is the first one. The second one, um, like you said, with constructivism, um, that ties through a lot of things, but it's this idea that, that learning has to be active. Um, that it's, it's not just kind of a, a passive process, that there are things going on in the learner's brain that are really active. So, you know, students are asking questions, they're analyzing, they're comparing, they're organizing, they're evaluating, they're connecting, they're creating, um, but they're doing processes, engagement processes that are active. Um, and we just, Sometimes that means we say, analyze, you know, we go into a class and we say, everybody analyze this or everybody evaluate this, or we tell them what to do. But sometimes we just set up an environment in which, which they can be active. We know we set up a nice library space and it has materials in it, or it has, let's say um, in a public library or school library, it has certain kinds of of um, objects or toys or games or things that that allow those things you know um, to occur puzzles or whatever it is that we know that learners get in there and they're interacting with these things and that inside their brains they're doing they're engaging explaining creating building construct um, that if we set up the right environment with the right stuff in it it'll be active. So that's important too. So I would say that's the second thing. And then the third thing, and this runs, I mean, throughout learning, uh, learning theory as well, the ones I deal with in the book, but learning theory theory as a whole, that the environment is really important for learning. Um, I mean, and even just in the example I just provided, like um, it matters how, you know, the space um, in which you're learning the way that space is constructed really matters. So you can think about it as a classroom environment and it's the things on the wall, the way that the teacher promotes a kind of dialogue. Um, All of that can be really important for, you know, for learning. It can be in an online space. That's the environment. Um, uh, That's important too. like the way that online environment is constructed in a library space. itself you know like I said before people come to libraries because they just know that they'll learn better there and some of it has to do with the fact that they look around the library and everybody is learning like everybody's reading or studying or having a a conversation about you know a class or I mean they're all learning and when you're in an environment where everyone is doing that your brain is primed to do the same and so The whole kind of environment, social, culture, cultural, physical, um, all of that promotes learning. Like I said earlier, even with observation, with modeling, if you see people doing things um, that you want to learn to do too, well, you. That's great. You've just you've got some examples of what what you need to do. It's really hard to learn if you don't ever have any positive models, right? Um. So all of that kind of contributes to the environment in which learning um takes place. Um. So um, the fourth kind of theme that runs through it, I think, is um the idea of uh, guidance. Um. That it's very true. And it happens all the time that people learn on their own, um, that maybe they learn without any guidance. But um, for many, many, many situations, um, learners are really helped by having some kind of guide, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, somebody who recognizes where they are and then kind of help them get to the next level, whether it's by creating a lesson, and they work through the lesson and get there. Whether it's by meeting with a librarian who kind of gauges where they are, and then you know models some strategies, works through some problems with them, asks them some questions. You know they write down some, we know, write down some notes together. Um, that that this a person, an educator of some kind, a parent could be a parent takes them from one level to the next. Um, and that often that guidance is very individualized, that people, um, people learn differently, um, you know, partly because of their personalities, their abilities, their cultural backgrounds. Um, they're just, just their preferences, that people learn, their interests, of course, people learn differently. And that often that guidance is really kind of tailored to where a person is and where they need to go. That is never going to be the same for every person. And that's that's part of what makes a good coach or a good mentor or um, makes for a good consultation, that it's really individualized to you. So guidance is really important too. And then I think the the fifth kind of theme is that ultimately these learning theories tell us that Um, When we're thinking about like instruction or instructional situations that they do have to be intentional, they have to be very intentional Um, that there's a lot we can do to make sure learning occurs better, <laughs> that it can't really just be, um, chaotic. So we have to think about when are times that this is appropriate, when are times that something else is appropriate, um, you know, we have to really think about those, um, think about those ideas and make kind of intentional, um, s- strategies. Um, and for example, like I see a lot more of this than I used to in the past, but like, um, I almost always see um librarians now when they are going to teach a lesson or begin a session i almost everybody always starts off with here's what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a then we're going to do b and then we're going to do c and that's actually a great instructional strategy because it's preparing the brain of the learner um and maybe they'll even you know ask you know learners questions about what they know about this already so they're kind of priming their existing knowledge um, and getting that ready to kind of receive new information. And that's just a good instructional practice that, that has become more common and, and accepted. But there, there are a lot of intentional things that we can do, often small, um, to make sure um that learning is successful, um, whether it's through a strategy or the tool we choose or how we kind of just kind of design the activity or what, you know, whatever it is. So I guess those five things are kind of the most important themes. So um, that learning has to be engaged, that learning has to be active, that the whole learning environment is really important, that learning um, often happens best through the really thoughtful guidance that comes from an educator, and that Um, instruction really needs to be intentional, really just well designed and well directed um, for the best for learning to occur. (laughs) So I think those are the things that I, um, and that, and that's important too. And I did want to, um, that even though, you know, these are separate topics, I have 14 separate topics and they can, like, you can just look at one uh, or two and think about them independently, but they do all kind of relate to each other. Like you said, they do, you know, and th- and learning is complicated. So you'll never have one theory that explains everything. Um, but they can coexist. You can think about the way that, okay. Self-regulation relates to motivation, which relates to your emotions, which, you know, so you can, they all kind of do interweave together. Um, they do kind of, um, they are related, they coexist and they, they all kind of contribute to, creating this bigger picture, this better understanding of learning um, that we can have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love those those ties across everything. Um, really makes me um, see some, some neat ideas to follow. Um, and I know I've taken a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I would love to know if there's anything else you'd like to share about this book that I didn't thing to ask or uh if you'd like to share about any new projects that you're working on after wrapping up this one.
1: Oh. <laughs> I hmm, I don't know, we covered a lot. Um yeah, um no, we 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 covered a whole lot. I think we covered everything. I mean, um there were some things that I I wrote about in the book that maybe I just saw less discussed in when I went to educational theory and then I I, I wanted to make sure that I covered here like the importance of imagination um so I had to kind of go a little bit farther afield and not just restrict to educational theory although educational theory by itself is rather interdisciplinary I mean it's comes from educational psychology so from the psychology literature mostly but it really connects to philosophy and anthropology and you know, sociology and all, I mean, it, it, it connects to so many different areas, which I think makes it, um, makes it, makes it really interesting. And then, um, yeah, yeah. I've just started to work on some new material, but I, um, some new research, but I'm still in the very early stages of it. So I, it's not enough well-formed yet to, to really discuss coherently.
0: Yeah. I totally understand. Um, Well, thank you so so much for chatting about this. Uh, Once again, today, I've been speaking with Ann Medai, author of The Librarian's Guide to Learning Theory, published by ALA Editions. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you've been listening to New Books Network.